0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and the flaming tumbleweed has rolled right back in. Uh, We're we're ready for part two of this series. That's right. Uh, If you
1: didn't listen to part one, go back. Give it a listen because we get uh, we get all into the the topic of tumbleweeds, talking about what uh, what tumbleweeds are what, what what do we mean when we we talk about them in the American sense in a broader sense, why do they do the tumbling, uh, and so forth. Uh, I, I think it was a pretty fun episode, and
0: we 're going to keep the ball rolling uh, today now. one of the interesting things that we discovered in the last episode is that while the tumbleweed is an icon of the American West. Uh, The main species of tumbleweed, the the thing people are usually talking about in the American context when they say a tumbleweed is a uh, plant known as Russian thistle that uh, only arrived in the United States probably around the 1870s. And so uh, this is not even native to North America. It's something that comes from the Eurasian steppe. Yeah, it is
1: very much uh, an invader. It is an invasive species. And and we're going to get into some of the ramifications of that here. But it's also one of the reasons why if you look for, um, f- for like Native American accounts of tumbleweeds, uh, you know, th- they're not going to exist before a certain point. Because they've, they've, they don't even come in with the initial uh, uh, colonists, with the initial uh, influx of Westerners, or even if, you know, the first few influxes of Westerners, they come in much later. However, you do find some interesting uh, uh, uses of tumbleweed. I was reading in the Journal of American Folklore, a 1988 article titled The Witches Were Saved, a Zuni origin story by Dennis Tedlock. So the Zuni are one of the Pueblo people of the American West, and the author here discusses a work by the author Andrew Penesta. Uh, intended for oral performance. Uh, Panesta was a Zuni storyteller, and the story in question was apparently told in 1965. Uh, and then Tedlock, uh, you know, r- is writing about it and, and discussing it. And it concerns interference by the U.S. military into Zuni affairs. But it mentions the tumbleweeds in a way that I, I think is rather clever and drives home their invasive and uh, uh, their their invasive nature here. Quote. There's a spot near Nutria where the soldiers camped. They fed hay to their horses, and there were tumbleweed seeds in it. Now only tumbleweeds grow on that spot, and they've spread
0: all over. Oh, so framing the, the soldiers here as a vector of uh, the spread of this invasive plant.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's my read of it anyway. You know, it, it, it's touching on the foreign invasive nature of both um both the, the the American military presence here and the the, the presence of uh, of Westerners in general, and the tumbleweed, both things that that kind of curse the land in this viewpoint. Now I was looking around for, and you know, obviously to find older sort of folkloric takes uh, and cultural takes on tumbleweeds, you have to go to the the parts of the world where tumbleweeds were originally or would have spread to before they had a chance to take root in America. Uh, literally, Um, I was reading The Rooster in the Transylvanian Folklore by Ferenc Posoni. And uh, in it, the author writes, On the Transylvanian Plain, people used to believe that witches would cause aridity by burning a stolen rooster feather on the tumbleweed.
0: Oh, this is interesting. So the tumbleweed lore does go back, you know, to to pre-modernity, but in, in in the steppe region rather than in North America. Yeah. And so I was I was looking around for more references
1: to it and I'm sure there's some good ones I missed. So anybody out there who's aware of uh, uh of any uh, uh you know folkloric treatments of tumbleweeds from from any part of the world, write in and share them with us. But I found mentions of tumbleweeds in Mongolian tradition. Namely, uh, as the subject of traditional Mongolian riddles as collected and discussed in Mongolian folklore, a representative collection from the oral tradition, part one. And this is by uh, Hengen, Kruger, Service, and uh, Rojieki, published in Mongolian Studies. And this came out, uh, this is one of those volumes that came out like bridging 85 and 86. Mm -hmm. So they cover both Mongolian folk sayings and riddles. In this paper, and it this was this was actually a real pleasure to read. I know Joe, you looked at it as well. It's Uh it's it's almost like I think I was telling you before we recorded. Like I kind of want to see this bound as its own little uh, paperback edition, and Mm -hmm. uh, and available for purchase somewhere because it's just it's full of these these fun little Mongolian folk sayings, and then ultimately riddles, many of which uh, you know are going to have resonance with with readers anywhere in the world.
0: Right, uh, though some of which are are completely like going to be lost on you if you don't know much about animal husbandry or goats or anything. But but right. other ones, yeah, uh, they are very universal and and almost all of the sayings are great. Uh, so the first half of it concerns more like proverbs, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of sayings that, that don't they're not like a prompt in the way the riddle is, uh, and and a lot of the proverbs are really good. One of them that I'm just doing this for memory but I think it was something like uh load a donkey up with cargo load a fool up with praise mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah they're so good though obviously yeah they're, they're 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 emerging from a particular culture in a particular region they speak very much to the environment uh and the cultures of uh, of the mongolian people here um but, uh, but yeah, the, the, the riddles here, they have a lot in common with riddle traditions around the world. The, uh, the authors here write, quote, the heart of the riddle is naturally the real or fancied resemblance between two ideas or things. Although sometimes punning plays a role when the similarity involves two or three words which sound alike. So I have a, uh, I have a couple of riddles here. Uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inflict them on you, Joe. Uh, okay. And you may be able to guess the answer to a couple of them, uh, but here's the first one. When it comes from yonder, it looks like a camel. When it crawls under the wagon, it looks
0: like a goat. <laughs> okay, so I know the answer to this one, which is that it, it's a tumbleweed, but uh, it, nonetheless, I don't get it. I don't understand why it looks like a goat when it crawls under the wagon. What, what do goats do under the wagon that is like, do goats kind of crack and break or are they brittle under a wagon? I don't
1: know. I guess maybe they're just smaller. Like I can definitely, uh, you know, the, my driving experience that I talked about in the the last episode. I can definitely uh, relate to the idea that the bumbling tumbleweed on the highway may look as big as a camel. It may be that intimidating. And then once you actually run it over, you're like, oh, well, that was more like running over a goat. <laughs> One assumes. <laughs> yeah. I've never run over a goat.
0: I don't know why I laughed. It'd be very sad to run over a goat. Oh, but, absolutely. But for some reason, that was funny at the time. At the time, 10 seconds ago. (laughs) But but anyway, I do think this is one of the ones that is interesting because it seems to require some kind of uh, localized knowledge that we don't really have. Uh, And this is something actually that the authors mention uh, in their introduction to the section on Mongolian riddles. They say that. Uh, you know, riddles are nearly universal in cultures around the world, and it's interesting to see what topics are the most common in each riddle culture. And so they say, for example, all cultures have riddles concerning astronomical phenomena like the sun and the moon. But that when you look at Mongolian riddles in particular, they're going to be especially focused on topics like animal husbandry. So there will be Riddles that that have to do with camels and goats and horses and and things like that, and obviously also localized plants will show up in a culture's riddles about nature. And the tumbleweed would be one of these. Speaking of which, here's another riddle, Joe,
1: from this uh, from this uh, this collection. It travels by the wind. It
0: stays in the ditch. Now, this one I get more. Yeah, this is a tumbleweed, and I think the 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 tickling, the brain tickling part of this. Maybe that it's playing on your assumption when you say it travels by the wind, people are naturally primed to think about something other than like a a plant or a feature of the natural world. Yeah, something
1: that actually lives uh, in in the air, something that flies in the air like a bird, or you're thinking maybe it's going to be something like song uh, or Mm. something. But what does it mean? It stays in the ditch. I I thought of a boat. That's a a good one too. But no, it's the tumbleweed, which – I mean, this feels right as well. I mean, there is this thing that is is pretty impressive when it really gets going, but ooh, it winds in a good ditch
0: and it's done for. Exactly. I mean, this calls to mind those images we saw last time of you know five hundred tumbleweeds all jammed into a culvert. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right, so Joe, you knew that the answer to those riddles was going to be the tumbleweed, right? Uh, but I wanted to I wanted to give you a, a shot at some non-tumbleweed Mongolian riddles here. Okay. So these, I, I I, I, I realize these may be a bit difficult, but we're going to give it a shot. Here's the first one. If I only had a tongue,
0: I would be a witness.
1: If I could only rise up, I could reach
0: up to heaven. Now, I saw this one before you read it, and I thought about it, and I honestly have no idea. I, I mean, so the second one is making me think it maybe is something that is long, but not tall, you know, like a... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but I, I really don't know. Well, you're on the right track because the answer to
1: this one is the road.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, well, I certainly get the second half. If I could only rise up, I could reach up to heaven. You know, if you could mm-hmm. flip the axis. But uh, why? What is it about the tongue? If I only had a tongue, I could be a witness. I,
1: I don't. I don't know uh, this one. I, they didn't come. They they basically just explained that this one had to do with uh, you know. They gave the answer but uh but uh, they didn't explain what the tongue and the witness bit means maybe just because uh you know so much happens on the road uh that mm. the road is uh is kind of all knowing in a sense it connects to everywhere yeah it's
0: like if these walls could talk but there are no walls if, the, right. if this road could talk
1: yeah and in in a sense you know it's uh, yeah it, it is everywhere at once the this road that i am on is is also uh, in this distant city as well as the city i came from and it's with me mm. right here Interesting. All right, here's one more.
0: I have something. Others use it a lot, but I use it only occasionally. Uh, now, with this one, I also have no idea. I was trying to think in the animal agriculture kind of zone. Would, could this be something about, I don't know, a, like a goat? Does a goat not use its own milk very much or something? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Well, the answer to this one is my name.
1: Oh, oh, that's very good. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. The, the the rationale being that generally you're not saying your own name as much as other people are saying
0: your name. But this is like not a good riddle if it's delivered by Bob Dole, right? Yeah, or Dwayne the Rock Johnson, that kind of thing. Exactly. Okay. Well, I pulled out one for you, Rob. Did you already see the solution to this one?
1: Um, I don't. I'm
0: probably not going to remember it. Okay, it's just one line. The head is the enemy of its body. Hmm. What is it?
1: The head is the enemy of its body. Oh. Ooh, I, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm, my mind is turning to, to cows and goats and horses, and I'm, I'm also, you know, trying to think of like the great expanse of the Mongolian countryside, and uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here.
0: I think I got us overly focused on on Boviday and stuff. No, no, no. Uh, the answer is a matchstick. Ah. That's pretty good. So, yeah, this has got to be a more modern riddle, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know when all of these come from. Like, do some of these date back hundreds of years, whereas others are, you know, maybe from the 19th or 20th century? Yeah, I get the impression that, that a number of them may be more recent. Oh, another one of them that I saw was pretty interesting was just the same one that appears in the uh, – it's the riddle of the Sphinx from, from Oedipus. So that, that appears to be a cross-cultural riddle. You know, uh, what has four legs in the morning, two legs in the, in the noontime, and, and three legs in the evening, it is a human, you know, because you're a baby mm-hmm. and you crawl. And then as an adult, you walk on two legs, and then in old age, you use a cane. Oh, but I got one more for you, Rob. Okay. okay. So this one is, on a sunny day, there are two – on a sunless day, there is but one. On a moonlit night, there are two. On a moonless night, there is but one. I mean, I'm thinking about light and know, silhouettes, shadows.
1: Yeah, that's sun. it. It's a shadow. Is it a shadow? Okay, wait. Yeah, so it's, let's a let's break person's this down. shadow.
0: There are two of you on a sunny day because you okay. have a shadow.
1: Okay, I got that. Okay, and then on a sunless day, there's just you. There's no shadow. Right. On a moonlit night, there are two. Again, you have a shadow. And on a yeah. moonless night it's too dark to see anything right shouldn't there be oh nothing? yeah there
0: shouldn't even be one on a moonless night there
1: were zero <laughs> That'd i guess be the better. stars are so bright that's one thing i guess we have to consider mm-hmm. i don't know for certain but it reminds me of um things i've read about egyptian mythology and about how uh an often unobscured sky is so central to uh sort of the world view of, of say ancient egyptians mm-hmm. i wonder if that holds true in mongolian culture as well uh, because if you have like this brilliant starlit sky and there's you know less probability of cloud cover, then perhaps that does illuminate things a little better. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, certainly there's going to be less possibility of you know light pollution and artificial light kind of creating these these deeper pockets of shadow.
0: But why does the tumbleweed under the wagon look like a goat?
1: <laughs> <I'm> st- <laughs> I mean, maybe it just has to do with like once it gets up here. It's not going to, uh, you know, kick butt like a camel would. Like it's going to be more or less hiding underneath the cart like a goat. Kind mm. of. Uh, uh, it's going to be this. It's not going to be this bounding, uh, brave-looking thing. It's going to be this meek uh, uh, little ball that's hiding around underneath the carts or jammed under a wheel, etc. Mongolian listeners, write in. Teach us. Help yeah. us figure this one out. Uh, by by the way, the sayings collected in this this, this book or, I mean, in this paper are also great. Uh, here's an example, one that kept jumping out at me every time I, I sort of skimmed past it, looking for tumbleweeds. Men follow customs. Dogs follow bones. <laughs> I like that one.
0: Yeah, that is good. So if the this implies a parallel in the way that these things are followed, would it be that humans uh, go after social customs in a kind of driven hungry instinctual way.
1: You know, I'm not sure if that is the the way we're supposed to take this or does it mean that a dog like just follows their gut instinct and like, you mm. know, follows immediate evidence, but men have customs that they have to follow.
0: Oh, the, um, yeah, that that's it. That could be the contrast. It could But be, but
1: I but I I, I yeah. find your interpretation interesting as well. I could I guess I could see it go either way.
0: I guess there's no comparative word in there. It doesn't say men follow customs like dogs follow bones. Mm.
1: Anyway, there are more of these, and if you're interested, again, it's Mongolian Folklore, a representative collection from the oral literary tradition, part one, and that's available on uh, JSTOR. So, uh, if you go to uh, JSTOR.org, uh, you can you can access it for free. I don't know if you have to sign in. I, I like I, I access it via membership, but, um, but not a paid membership. So, go for it if you're interested.
0: Okay, one more one before we move on. Okay. It's that uh, this is just a proverb. It's that children who grow up spoiled are more difficult to handle than a bull's neck. Okay. What about a bull's neck, though? I guess it's difficult to
1: get your hands around it, right? Like, no, it's I guess it that's true. a bull's yeah. neck can be so thick that you can't even reach your arms around it and, like, you know, lock your your knuckles together. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, we're going we're gonna to leave uh, Mongolian um, wisdom aside here for a little bit. We're going to get back to um, more North American tales of the tumbleweed. And so I was just you know, thinking at this point, you're probably going, well, geez, guys, I get, I get that tumbleweeds are bad and uh, you know, that sometimes they're like a camel and sometimes like they're a goat. Okay, fair enough. But what do they mean for the proliferation of radioactive waste? Well, we're glad you asked because it's actually an interesting question, uh, and one of the things I found even more fascinating about it is that the the role that tumbleweeds play in uh, in our treatment of radioactive waste uh, can vary greatly depending on like what source you're looking at.
0: Well, yeah, and I, I think the radioactivity will play more into the the second example we're talking about than the first, which might be more clearly classed as a case of toxic waste right yes uh but but both have to do with uh the
1: the leavings of um of the atomic age yeah Um, so um the atomic age as we've discussed in the show before uh especially i think the the episode or episodes in question uh it was titled uh, The Atomic Scar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the atomic age has left various scars on the planet, including radioactive waste that we have to seal away and figure out how to symbolically warn ap- apocalyptic wanderers 10,000 years in the future uh, that they shouldn't mess with this because it's bad. Uh, so we're always looking at for ways to secure it, to re-secure it, to clean it up, uh, etc. Now, you might remember another episode we did titled The Tide of Gold, and in that we discussed some sort of novel gold harvesting schemes and ideas, and we discussed how plants can harvest gold from the ground. Basically, the premise here is that some plants have the ability to absorb minerals through their roots and, uh, and, uh, and, and concentrate metals such as nickel, uh, cadmium, and zinc. Uh, these plants are also known as hyperaccumulators. They are no natural gold hyperaccumulators, but there are ways to make it possible through soil manipulation. So you like treat the soil that contains the gold in a certain way, and you can sort of engineer it so that certain plants that have this natural ability uh, will actually draw uh, that gold up into their root system. Mm. So you can probably see where we're going here. Remember how we mentioned that tumbleweed roots can dive 20 feet down into the soil? Well, as pointed out by geologist uh, Dana Ulmer-Scholl of the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology in Socorro, reporting to the U.S. Geological Society in 2004, tumbleweed plants are actually really good at soaking up depleted uranium from contaminated soils at weapons testing grounds and battlefields.
0: Now this is interesting. Uh, I, I guess we should do a little sidebar here on depleted uranium because you might be wondering. Okay, depleted uranium, and you you hear that, you hear uranium, you hear weapons testing grounds, and you might naturally think like, oh, uh, nuclear bomb detonation sites. But this is actually talking about something different. Uh, so depleted uranium. Is often used in heavy munitions uh, as as a metal, not as a a fissile material for a bomb, uh, but as a metal, and it's used in these munitions because of its density and armor penetrating properties. So it's, you know, you can make a very dense projectile out of it. I believe it is more than half again as dense as lead. Something it's like sixty something percent more dense than lead is. Uh, and that density also makes it useful for certain things in like the aeronautics. Field. I think I've read that it's used sometimes as a uh, counterweight or counterbalance in some helicopter rotor blades. Uh, but it's also used for plating in armored vehicles, again, because it's dense, so it's more likely to stop a projectile. And then also in creating shielding against radiation. But as, uh, as ammunition in particular, I think depleted uranium is used not just because it's dense, but because, say, when it hits the armor plating of a tank to try to penetrate it. It has these properties where it tends to kind of fragment in a way that, that makes the projectile sharper rather than blunter. Mm-hmm. And as it penetrates through the armor plating of, a, of an armored vehicle, it also tends to ignite and explode on the inside. So it has a lot of properties that you would want if you were trying to shoot through an armored vehicle. Now, to pick up on uh, the, uh, the caveat I was giving earlier about radioactivity, depleted uranium has very low levels of radioactivity. It's actually It actually has less radioactivity than is typically found in natural uranium. But uranium, whether natural or depleted uranium, has significant chemical toxicity. So it is clear that it is dangerous to ingest certain amounts of it beyond a certain threshold – But at least according to some sources, this is not really because of radioactivity, Uh, though there might be some continuing controversy about the radiological effects in particular. I'll I'll mention a little more about that in a minute. Um, But I was trying to look up, okay, how does it work? Well, according to the U.S. Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, or the ATSDR, which is a uh, a government agency under the the umbrella of the Health and Human Services Department – uh, they put out a fact sheet on the health effects of uranium, both known and under investigation. And they say that both natural and depleted uranium have – they have the same toxic effects within a human body. The primary of which is uh, adverse effects to the renal system, so the kidneys. So either inhaling or ingesting significant amounts of uranium compounds and I think possibly by, uh, by having it uh, enter the body as shrapnel as well. Uh, This is known to cause damage to the kidneys and there may be some secondary effects as well, but the secondary effects are less clear. Um, The more I looked into this, the more complicated the picture of the health effects of exposure to depleted uranium became. Um, So like you'll find a lot of – debate. There are questions about the exposure of combat veterans and people living in war zones who have uh. been exposed to, to ammunition with depleted uranium content. Uh, and I did not have time to wade into all of that controversy and figure out what I thought about it. But I will say at the very least, uh, you do not want your body exposed to high levels of depleted uranium, uh, definitely because of its known adverse health effects. And then there may be other secondary effects on top of what is currently known as well. But like most things, uh, the, the toxicity of depleted uranium depends on dosage over time. So we're all exposed to tiny amounts of uranium from the natural environment on a consistent basis. This is completely unavoidable. It's just part of living on planet Earth. There's going to be tiny, tiny amounts of uranium in the food you eat and the water you drink. But if you are living in certain areas where there is significant uranium contamination in the environment, those those levels could go up above what is safe.
1: Right, and and therefore it stands to reason if you had, say, a former uh, ammunition testing ground and you wanted to do something else with that and not just keep it, uh, you know, set aside for uh, you know the duration of. of uh, of, uh, of human civilization or something uh you might want to reclaim it you might want to find a way to get depleted uranium out of the ground and uh that's where a, a few different plants have uh, have shown promise at drinking up that depleted uranium um one of them, for instance, is uh, the Indian mustard uh, plant. But uh, as this uh, this research points out, one of the things about many of these plants is that they thrive in um, in, in in wetter soils. Uh, what are you going to do uh, when you have something out in a desert? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, that's where the tumbleweed comes in. The tumbleweed, of course, famously excels in dry, barren places. Uh, one rolls into a, a well-irrigated yard in a New Mexico suburb, and it's doomed. Uh, it can't compete with the grass, but if it goes into an abandoned um, uh, you know, feedlot or, or some sort of a agricultural site, uh, an undeveloped bad land. Well, then that's where the tumbleweed is king. And so it's ideally suited for some of the uh, the desolate places that we find depleted uranium in the United States, especially uh, in, in the West. Uh, in the western states. So the argument here is that this could be a safe method as well uh, because the plants do most of the absorption well before they detach. So if you were managing the site, if you were uh, you know, planting intentionally the, um, uh, the, the tumbleweed uh, plants here, then the plants could be harvested and disposed of well before the, the, uh, the drying phase begins and then ultimately the, the tumbleweed breaks free
0: and uh, is able to, to roll free. Exactly. And so I I thought this was very interesting. I did look around for more follow up on this about uh using tumbleweeds for for remediation of Heavy metals like depleted uranium or other toxic substances in, in soils, and I didn't find anything much more recent. So, so I don't know uh, if or or how much uh, anybody's picked up on this research. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Well,
1: like, like we we hinted at before, this is a this is something I, we often see with the tum- with tumbleweed related research. Somebody will have an idea about something we can do with the tumbleweeds. What can we do with these tumbleweeds? What can we do about these tumbleweeds? And someone will have a novel approach, but either it's something that doesn't seem to work out for one reason or another, or it requires more research and is perhaps still being researched. Um, It seems like I I saw this more often than not.
0: Oh, did we ever find anything else out about what happened to that tumbleweed eating machine we talked about in part (laughs) one?
1: No, not yet. but, But the ep- as we're recording this, the episode has the, the first episode has not aired. So I'm hoping that we'll hear from some uh, New Mexico listeners. Like maybe maybe there are counties in New Mexico where they they had one of these or have one still. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we'll get some local intel. I did email one of the researchers who, who was uh, involved in the original uh, project and the uh, the original prototype, but uh, I, I have not heard back from them. And and nor would I be that surprised because just some. <laughs> Rando is reaching out to them out of nowhere and asking them about a project that they they worked on decades ago. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 I can understand their, uh, their they might see that as just a, a spam uh, email. All right, so we're not done with the idea of uh, tumbleweeds and uh, weapon sites and so forth. Uh, and in uh, this week, turned to an article that uh, that you you dug up, Joe. This was from uh, Sarah Zhang writing uh, uh, for Gizmodo back in 2014, which was just a really great year for all things tumbleweed. A number of the articles uh, that we end up referring to in this come from 2014. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she cited a George Johnson piece in National Geographic, particularly uh, this bit. Quote, during the early 1960s, after above-ground nuclear testing finally ceased at the Nevada test site, the first thing said to grow back was Russian thistle. Radioactive Salsola has come tumbling out of the old Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington, where plutonium was manufactured during the Cold War. I half expect to hear someday that Russian thistle has been found on the moon.
0: Yeah, and uh, I can't remember if we already said it so far in this episode or not, but Russian thistle is the, the common name of the main species of tumbleweed that it, that is now known in the United States. Uh, that's right. That's the... Uh, Number of different scientific names have been used. Salsola tragus, Cali tragus. Uh, and this is the Salsola, Salsola that the author here is talking about in this, uh, this Nat Geo piece that's being quoted. But yeah, it is not surprising to me to hear that tumbleweed is, is the first thing moving in uh, at, a, at a nuclear testing site. Right.
1: And, uh, and as Zang explains, it's just one of many organisms that can interfere with our efforts to just set aside such wastes and such waste site or just sort of secure such locations. Um, now, the the Hanford Nuclear Reservation is of note here because uh, it and tumbleweeds were in the news as recently as January 2020, as reported by Maria Kramer in uh, the New York times uh, with the headline storm of tumbleweeds, buries cars, terrifies drivers and astounds police. But some, I have to point out that some places, including, I believe the the Chicago tribune altered the headline, um, or updated the headline. I would say, I don't want to say altered, like they did something uh, super nefarious Uh to say, um, storm of quote unquote, nuclear tumbleweeds, buries cars, (laughs) terrifies drivers and astounds police. Um, it's in quotes because they're referring to a particular quote in the, um, uh, the original article where they're talking about uh, this tumbleweed in which they mentioned, quote, the highway is in a flat, wide open area close to the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, which is known as one of the sites of the Manhattan Project and where plutonium was produced to help build the atom bomb. And then there's this quote from a uh, Mr. Thorn- Thorson that says, quote, some people are calling them nuclear tumbleweeds. So, that's the, so that,
0: the, that might be jumping to some conclusions here, but not not entirely without reason. Right, right. Yeah, the, the article does not discuss
1: tumbleweeds as radioactive in nature, other than including that one little quote. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, the the Hanford location, as discussed by Elliot Marshall in a 1987 edition of the journal Science, um uh, has pointed out that that this is a location that has had issues with badgers, rabbits, ground squirrels, burrowing owls, pocket mice, insects, rabbit brush, and yes, tumbleweeds uh, interfering with, uh, with human efforts to sort of leave this site alone and undisturbed.
0: Well, yeah, they're literally having breaches due to wildlife, like failures of uh, nuclear material or, or high-level waste containment due to breaches by things like badgers. Yeah, and then things like rabbits
1: uh, with, like, radioactive rabbit poop because rabbits have gotten in there. Yes. Here's a quote from Marshall. "'With roots that can grow down 20 feet, tumbleweeds reach down into waste dumps and take up strontium-90, break off, and blow around the dry land.'" And this caused some to worry that the the radiation in the tumbleweeds could then be released into the air if these weeds were to to do what tumbleweeds sometimes do, collect somewhere and then catch fire. Or what happens if they reach a body of water? Remember that example from the last episode talking about a tumbleweed, uh, this mighty tumbleweed rolling into the water and then kind of melting there. Um, You know, you don't want your your radioactive
0: shredded wheat uh, hitting the milk. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so it, it's not necessarily uh, actually known that these uh, tumbleweeds from this story in January 2020 uh, ha- had significant radioactivity levels, but tumbleweeds are one of the biological vectors that could potentially breach some types of nuclear material containment. Right, that seems to be the case. And of course, the fact that they then break off and blow around afterwards is, is not helpful. Right. Right.
1: And, I mean, we do have to, uh, to acknowledge the fact that there are radioactive tumbleweeds in the video game Fallout New Vegas. So, <laughs> I don't know. Is that true? The tumbleweeds? Apparently. I, I played New Vegas, and I remember enjoying it, but I do not remember the tumbleweeds. I, I had not yet um, fostered uh, an appreciation for the tumbleweed. So, uh, I, uh, if they were there, I forgot them, but I, I ran across this in, in my searches. So, it, it seems to be the
0: case let I'd say good on them at, fall, at the what, – what was the team that made that game? Uh, they did the research.
1: <laughs> now, uh, given uh, all we shared about the problems posed by invasive tumbleweeds in the United States, it should come as no surprise that the USDA has looked into ways of eradicating them or at least significantly reducing their number. Uh, and they've, uh, some, some of the, the ways they've, they've, uh, they've examined this uh, are, are rather interesting. Uh, one method that has been proposed is to, to take the classic approach and, uh, and introduce a particular type of mite. This is Assyria salsole, which uh, kills the growing tips of the plant and stunts it. Uh, Supposedly, studies have shown that it only targets this particular mite species, it only targets a few closely related species uh, to the tumbleweed, and all of these species are pest species.
0: Oh, but the proposed biological controls do not stop there. That's right.
1: They've also uh, looked into, researchers have also looked into using two fungi species native to the tumbleweed's original, uh, you know, Russian or Ukrainian environment. This news was making the rounds in 2014. They've also looked into viral methods of targeting invasive tumbleweeds with viruses. Uh, the USDA was also testing viruses developed from two types of dying tumbleweeds in, uh, in uh, Russia and in Hungary. And this was also reported in, again, 2014, uh, just hmm. a banner year for tumbleweed research. Now, I'm not sure where we are with any of these different approaches. Uh, the 2014 ones, anyway. I mean, that's not too long ago. It seems feasible that there still could be some research going on there, um, uh, maybe it's a situation where the research did fizzle out or maybe there's just a lot of contemplation that has to go into the massive introduction of another uh, invasive species or some sort of other biological control to try and take care of your existing problem uh, because you yeah.
0: you, know, you you know, don't want to
1: overflow the, the tub any more than
0: it's already overflowing. You know, I was just trying to remember uh, which previous episode we talked about some of the um, controversies of, of using, you know, uh, different species for biocontrol methods of, of existing invasive species uh, and uh, the, the one that came to mind that looks at least the time we talked about it, like it was going pretty well, was on Christmas Island, where the you know the mm-hmm. the big native crab populations. Or wait, were those crabs originally from somewhere else as well? I don't recall. But anyway, the the crab populations on Christmas Island, the glorious flows, the ocean, the tide of crabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were being threatened by these ant populations there that were you know squirting formic acid into the the crabs' joints and and killing them. Uh, I think they were the uh, the yellow crazy ants right yeah that sounds right yeah so the yellow crazy ants uh, there were uh, some conservationists who had developed a plan to help try to control populations of the yellow crazy ants by deploying a predator a, a predatory micro wasp that would that would cut back on the the ant colonies there uh, and at least last time we read about that it seemed like that was going well so far and uh, and had not had any. Any dangerous spillover. But yeah, you, you always wonder like you don't, you know, you, f- first order of business is do no harm. And uh, it, it's always uh, it's always a little risky when you say, well, let's introduce a different thing and, and just hope that it only has this targeted effect that we want it to. Yeah, I mean, time was. Uh,
1: when human beings thought they could fix a problem by introducing a new invasive species, they would just do it. Yes. <laughs> and and, that would, and, uh, and a lot of times that would end up resulting in, in a new problem, a new invasive species. So it's, it's good that, uh, that we're being more thoughtful about this because ultimately you're dealing with a very complex uh, ecosystem in any case. Um, and it, it's, it's difficult to figure out exactly what the ramifications of introducing something new are going to be or to introducing another new thing into it. Oh, but I just recalled,
0: I'd been trying to remember what was the example we talked about in that episode of, uh, of a, uh, a biocontrol species that had been introduced and then really backfired, and, and I couldn't call it to mind. But I just did. It was the cane toads in Australia ah, yes. that were brought in, I think, to control beetle populations that were threatening agriculture, but then the cane toads became a, uh, became a huge problem in their own right
1: yeah yeah there yeah there there are so many different uh accounts one can turn to where we can that, that uh, you know are, are cautionary tales in introducing new species to try and fix a problem uh and and, and then you know another aspect of all of this too is that is that things change environments shift um uh, for instance, I was looking at uh, a University of California riverside study from twenty nineteen. Um, And and this was making the case that the, quote-unquote, monster tumbleweed species, Salsola rayani, was once thought to be actually going extinct, uh, but it has since gained ground Uh, as it apparently remains green into late summer and has increasingly been able to take full advantage of rains during that time period. Uh, So its footprint has been expanding in recent years. And this is one that grows up to six feet tall. So uh, it's a massive tumbleweed. Uh, But just, just I guess, a footnote in the... uh, you know, in, in the lesson that you know, you're you, you can try and solve one particular problem in a, at a certain period of time, but uh, but what is the the situation going to look like? Uh, you know, say ten years down the road, especially when we're looking at at uh, at, um, at climate change and um, and, and other factors uh, having an impact on the natural environment. But but then again, maybe maybe I'm wrong. And like as we're recording this somewhere. On the roads in New Mexico, uh, there is a massive snow plow with uh, an enormous um, a grinder on the front of it, and in the back of that snow plow, there are a whole bunch of mites and viruses and <laughs> fungi, and it's just making a bee line for the tumbleweed uh, uh, nation. So
0: I don't know. Sorry, I, I'm thinking now about the six foot tall tumbleweed. Uh, okay, <laughs> so I'm imagining somebody trying to like get that with a pitchfork. How heavy does that get? I know the tumbleweeds are typically uh, very low density, right? Because they need to be able to be blown mm-hmm. by the wind. But I don't know, once you're six feet wide, you also have a lot of surface area to catch the wind. So you could probably be pretty heavy and still get blown around. Uh, like how hard does it get? We Can can they just get bigger and bigger and bigger?
1: I mean, they are mostly air. But that being said, I if I had to choose between hitting – a four-foot diameter tumbleweed with my rental car or, or hitting a six-foot diameter uh, tumbleweed with my rental car, I'm definitely going to swerve towards the four-foot uh, diameter tumbleweed. That being said, again, if you're driving
0: and the tumbleweed's come at you, don't swerve. Uh, that's where the, the problems really start. I suppose I'm imagining runaway tumbleweed evolution where they, you know, 10-foot tumbleweed, 30-foot tumbleweed, 100-foot tumbleweed, and eventually the planet is ruled by gargantuan tumbleweeds. They create their own culture.
1: (laughs) You know, coming back to – you know, cinematic uses of tumbleweed that we touched on earlier on, uh, it does seem that it's the, the symbol, the, the, the iconic scene is that lone tumbleweed uh, making its way across the screen. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen or I don't remember ever seeing a, a cinematic treatment where it is like a whole herd of tumbleweeds, but mm-hmm. that is the, the more impressive sight. And in a way, it would seem to drive home the desolation. Not only is this place so desolate, um, that one tumbleweed is coming by. It is just taken over. All life is tumbleweed here.
0: I bet you could make a really good sentient tumbleweeds horror movie. That yeah.
1: Well, we we were discussing this a little bit um, off mic the other day. Uh, I wonder to what extent or any extent uh, the Critters franchise has any connection to tumbleweeds. I mean, those Ooh. are films that uh, originate out of Texas. Uh, the first one was set in Texas, I believe. Oh, I um, forgot that. So, I couldn't find anything just offhand. I didn't go deep and start listening to director's commentaries or anything. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those the, those creatures, the krites, they're, they're kind of like little tumbleweeds. And they, they roll together. They, they join together into big tumbling pods. Um, they're kind they're of like tumbleweeds Species creature, And they're invasive. Yeah, they're from another planet. I put it out to you, the listener. Have you directed a Critters movie? If <laughs> 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 so, uh, write in and let us know what you think about the comparison between a Crit and a Tumbleweed. Are you Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, yeah, yeah. Were Leonardo you in Caprio a Critters was in,
0: movie?
1: Was in Critters 2. Uh, the Critters franchise has, has a lot of talent in it. If you start really looking at some of the names involved, mm-hmm. especially on the acting end of the spectrum, uh, it, it's, it's star-studded.
0: Which is the one where they just, like, go to a buffet restaurant. Isn't there one where they do that? They eat at the <laughs> I buffet. don't know.
1: Um, I've, the Critters movies are it's one of those franchises where I don't think I've, I've ever sat down and just watched a full Critters movie. It's just they would come on TV a lot back in the mm-hmm. day. And so when Critters was on, you just watched some Critters. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, at what
0: point I was jumping in and out of the series the other day you pointed out that there's one critters movie where they go to space, which is yep. a little underwhelming because the critters are from space. They're aliens. Yeah. Know, but It's like, it makes sense for when Jason goes to space, that's weird. You leprechaun <laughs> in space. Okay. That's weird. But now this is like aliens in space.
1: Well, um, yeah, maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a little odd, but it's where you got to go. It's like they went, they went, uh, critters one, critters two, critters three, they go to LA critters four. They go into space. I don't know where they go after that. I think there was a TV series
0: recently. Oh, I think they go on the Odyssey then, right? They're trying to return home to Ithaca. (laughs)
1: Maybe so. All right. Uh, We're going to go ahead and uh, call it there. This is going to be the end of our two episode series on tumbleweeds. But again, we'd love to hear from everyone out there, especially those of you who live in tumbleweed country, which, um, you know, technically, if you look at a map, uh, includes, uh, you know, most people in the United States. Uh, but uh, at, at any rate, we'd love to hear your uh, your your tidbits and your uh, your uh, hear of your experience with uh, the mighty tumbleweed, uh, whether it be, be coming at you like a camel or hiding under the the cart like a goat. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can listen to us in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes in there on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesday, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do weird house cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Um, We have a number of different web presences, but... If you, uh, you, know, you look us up on the iHeartRadio page or you just go to stufftoblowyourmind.com um, or if you just go to, uh, I think, the, uh, the Instagram page, um, uh, any of the others, uh, there's often going to be a link there for merchandise. If you want to check that out, uh, that's just kind of a, a fun way uh, to uh, celebrate the brand. If you want a shirt or a, like a mouse pad or a throw pillow uh, with our logo on it, or some other various designs, uh, go check that out. We're we're going to see about possibly adding some more designs this year. So, also, yeah, write into us and let us know if there's any kind of stuff to blow your mind, merch that you think should exist. Uh, likewise, I don't know if there's any merch from our show that you think should not exist. Let us know, and we'll make sure not to create that. Should
0: we create designer tumbleweeds, which uh, we we send to you by <laughs> wind mail? Obviously oh. not. <laughs> Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.